I want to welcome you all this morning. Thank you so much for being here on this amazing Sunday, week four of our Enough series to our online community. I want to welcome you as well. Let me invite you guys up front. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles and jump to the book of 2 Thessalonians. That is going to be seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. Our ushers are coming forward to the stage right now, and they have in their hands some Bibles. If you need a Bible, if you didn't have one today or you'd like a Bible, please, I invite you to raise your hand, and our ushers would be happy to bring you a Bible. Do know that this is our gift to you. This Bible is yours to have and to keep. We truly believe that the Word of God is active and that it's alive, and that as we explore it and get into it and adopt it, it becomes living in us. It becomes active and alive in us as well. So it's a great thing for you to bring your Bible each and every week uh, to follow along, but also to highlight things that stand out, circle things, write down some observations and some questions. Uh, excited for today. So Second Thessalonians, give you a second to get there. As you do, I was reading this last week in preparation for another sermon series coming up that I'm very excited about. And in my studies, I came across a story in a book that has been with me every day since I initially read it. It was so profound, in fact, that I took the time to type out the story and I thought I would share it with you today. Martin Pistorius was a happy, healthy little boy. But when he was 12, a mysterious illness left him comatose for three years. When he finally woke up, he was unable to move and unable to speak. Locked-in syndrome paralyzes all the voluntary muscles in the body with one curious exception. Vertical eye movement. Martin was reduced to persistent vegetative state. Specialists told his parents that he had zero intelligence and zero awareness. The specialists were wrong, but Martin had no way of proving it. He had no capacity to communicate his thoughts or feelings with the outside world. He was literally a prisoner trapped inside his own body. Martin would be dropped off at the medical center to be cared for day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year for 13 and a half years. When Martin needed assistance, he couldn't even cry like a baby. He was physically unable. And because the specialist, they thought his intelligence level was that of a toddler, Martin was placed in front of a television turned to Barney and Friends and Teletubbies, a.k.a. Purgatory. <laughs> For 13 and a half years, a silent witness to the world around him, Martin felt totally alone totally powerless. Well, almost, he wrote, I was completely entombed, says Martin in his memoir, Ghost Boy. The only person who knew there was a boy within the useless shell was God, and I had no idea why I felt his presence so strongly. He was with me as my mind knitted itself back together. He was as present to me as air as constant as breathing. Everyone, even his own mother and father, acted as if Martin didn't exist. No one thought he was there, no one except a nurse named Verna, who believed that Martin was more aware than anyone realized. Verna had seen a television program about a new technology that enabled stroke victims who couldn't speak to communicate with the help of an electronic uh, device. Then she whispered words of hope 
Martin, do you think you could do something like that? I'm sure you could. Because of Verna's persistence, Martin was taken to the Center for Argumentative and Alternative Communication at the University of Pretoria, South Africa. Using infrared sensors that tracked eye movement, a doctor asked Martin to identify pictures on a screen. First a ball, then a dog, then a television. Martin used the one thing, the one thing he could control, eye movement, to identify each and every object. More than 13 years after contracting the illness that trapped him inside of his body, Martin learned to communicate with a computerized voice using a joystick. Two years later, he got his first job. He went to college. He started his own company. He got married. He wrote a book. And he did it all with a joystick. The one thing that Martin was sure of, in every circumstance, God is enough. How many of us serve a circumstantial God based on how we feel? Or are we able to say with absolute certainty that our God is enough regardless of the circumstances? That's what we're going to talk about today. If you are taking notes and you want to follow along, I've entitled my talk today, In All Circumstances, God is Enough. I want to invite you again to turn to 2 Thessalonians 7, 8 to the way through your Bible in the New Testament. We're going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to spend some time in 12 short verses together. As I've said often since I started my tenure here, I want to spend a few minutes with culture and context because I truly believe that the more we are able to understand and identify culture and context, the better we are able to understand and apply the word of God to our lives. As we start reading, we're going to learn that this letter is penned by the Apostle Paul in conjunction with two men that he is serving as a mentor over. Silas and Timothy. The letter of 2 Thessalonians is on the heels of his first letter to the church that he sent, uh, to the letter that he sent to the church in, in Thessalonica. This is a new established body of believers. And as Paul is on his missionary journeys, he is establishing not only a relationship with this community, but he is beginning to present the gospel to teach them and to equip them in the ways of following Jesus. Within a few months of his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul hears word that there is some confusion about eschatology. There are some questions that are beginning to surface about end times, Jesus' second coming, the promise of his ascension, the new heaven and the new earth, and what that day or what we call the day of the Lord will look like. And because of the outside influences of the, the known world at that time around them, the Apostle Paul thinks it's important to clarify what that will look like and what the significance of that is. That's a large part of why he writes this letter. The other part of why the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica is because within a matter of months, while the church was dealing with some persecution 
in their earlier letter that they received from the Apostle Paul, it would seem to me that they have begun to experience greater extremes of persecution. Their circumstances had begun to shift. And Paul wants to write not only encouragement to them in the midst of their circumstances, but he also wants to give them clear instructions on how to manage their faith through the circumstances. How many of us would do well to learn a lesson this morning about managing our faith through circumstances? Because we don't serve a circumstantial God, church. We serve a God who's enough in spite of all circumstances. So with your Bibles open, your hearts open, your minds open, and your ears open, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for this time, and I ask that you redeem this hour for your glory. As your name is lifted up, I pray that you would draw all people into yourself. Father, I pray that as I communicate, that you would quicken your word to my heart, and that you would anoint my mouth, that the words that come out would be your words. I pray that I would preach with authenticity, with integrity, and in a way that you penetrate hearts and minds. God, I pray that each person hearing your words today would encounter you, would adopt your text, and would make the decision to live a life that honors you. For each and every person that's going to be here in hearing this message this morning, that is dealing with a circumstance that is, it's been overwhelming, I pray that they would hear your still, small voice through the noise. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. Amen. All right, guys, let's do the work of investigating this text together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Maybe unlike any other time before, this text came alive and jumped off of the page at me. One word in particular is the word belong. It is not an accident that the Apostle Paul, accompanied by Silas and Timothy, write to followers of Jesus about belonging. And I do want us to take just a moment to understand the stark contrast and the variance between accepting Jesus and belonging to Jesus. Many of us have been taught a poor theology that says that if we would just accept Jesus, that we, gotta, we have a get out of jail free card, and we have fire insurance. The problem with that is that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that when you come to Jesus, when you respond to the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, drawing you unto himself, that when you repent of your sins, when you confess that Jesus is Lord of your life and that he's sovereign, that you are to surrender your life to him, all of your life. There is a difference between accepting and belonging. We are called not only to accept the truth of God's word. We are called, Christian, to belong to God in every way. With our finances, with our relationships, at our places of employment, with the words that come out of our mouth. I mean, how many of us are circumstantial Christians? If we're being honest, I'll raise my hand. 
There are times where I choose not to be a Christian when I'm driving. No, no. There are times when people in Nebraska force me not to act Christian while driving. We practice circumstantial Christianity. And the reason that we practice circumstantial Christianity, if I'm being honest, is because we don't yet belong to God in every way. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, I'm writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God, regardless of circumstances, you are fully surrendered. Church, I don't, I don't, I don't prescribe to entire sanctification or the act of becoming complete and whole this side of heaven. I think that that's the act of Jesus' work on the cross and his death and resurrection. I do believe that when you come into a right relationship with Jesus, you are sanctified, that you are, your sins are covered, that you are excused or forgiven from those sins. But I also believe the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 7 specifically, what I do, I don't want to do. What I don't want to do, I do. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? It's no longer I, it's sin living in me. This is what is known as progressive sanctification. So it's the act of belonging to Jesus more and more every day. Before you knew Jesus, you had 54 things that you did wrong, and now you have 37 that you aren't getting right. And every day, we make the decision to belong to Jesus more and more. But by the grace of God, there go I. But I love it. I love, I love that word picture that the Apostle Paul paints that we are called to not only accept Jesus, but belong to God. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Verse 3, dear brothers and sisters, I love the Apostle Paul that he does this so often is he doesn't talk at them, but he relates to them on a familial level. Isn't that amazing? Let me give you an example. I love it when I was, uh, well, you learn about this when, psychology was my minor in college, and so you learn some of these little things, but I love it when my kids talk to me. I don't stand over my kids and talk down at them. When my kids are having a conversation with me, because I tend to be much larger than, they took after my wife, and, and so I, I get down, at eye level with them, and I have a conversation with them right here. I'm connected to them. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, look, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're connected in this. I, I may not be in the same proximity as you, but we're connected in, in, in our faith. How many of us are intentional about reminding one another that we're connected in our faith? Not talking down or talking about or talking around, but talking to and saying, hey, I'm with you in this. We're, 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 we're in this together. We're a family. We can't help. Oh, this might be, this might be my favorite. This truly might be my favorite line in all of Paul's epistles. We can't help. We can't help, but thank God for you. Because, I want you to circle that word because. I really do. Or highlight it, asterisk, something. We can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. What we haven't read into this letter yet, but I'm going to give you as a precursor, is that this church, these believers, are going through extreme persecution. They are facing circumstances far beyond their control that are challenging them at their core. In every way, in every area of their life, there is nothing exempt. Notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't say anything about their persecution at the onset. What he does say is, we can't help but get excited for you. We can't help 
but praise God for you and with you. And he lists two reasons. Because your faith is amazing and your love for people is growing. This is a community that is under heavy circumstances. They apparently didn't get the memo that when you deal with extenuating circumstances that are difficult or tough in life that you're supposed to pout and feel sorry for yourself and mope around and want everybody else to look and feel bad for you and you share with everybody how horrible it is. They didn't get that memo. The apostle Paul says, we can't help but get excited for you because your faith is amazing and your love for others is growing. What is your because moment in your life? Every one of us has a because moment. And I'm going to ask you this way. Is your because moment contagious? Is your because moment drawing people to want to know the God whom you serve? Or is your because moment causing people to want to stay away from you and your God? You see... If in the middle of your trials and circumstances, life is so difficult that all you do is mope and make sure that everybody around you knows how difficult things are, they're not going to want to be around you because you don't serve an all-powerful God, or at least you don't, you don't demonstrate that, and because, man, you're a little high maintenance. Now, I don't say that we should pretend that life is great when it's not. We're going to talk about that throughout this, I promise you. But what I want us to pay attention to are the because moments in our life. Even when things are difficult, we can sing because we have the Savior. We can rejoice because we know about the eternity that awaits us. We can be glad because our God is not circumstantial. Our God is enough in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul says... Because your faith is flourishing, your love for one another is growing. Verse 4. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and the hardships that you are suffering. We're going to talk about suffering in a moment, but I want to touch on something about, we just can't skip over. For some reason, church in the last couple of decades has a growing trend that becomes myopic and self-centered. Church has moved away from the capital C church where we, we cared a little less about denominational divides and a whole lot more about one body of believers and into a spiritual contest where we compare ourselves collectively with other churches around us. Instead of celebrating the victories of the other churches, instead of praying for the other pastors and parishioners, we think it's our job to examine what they're doing, place value on it, and compare it to what we're doing. I don't mean us as Country Bible Church, but the church in general. The problem with this is this is extra biblical. In fact, I would argue it's unbiblical. We are not called to be in competition with us. I am not in competition with Christ Lutheran Church. I am not in competition with uh, the Baptist church. I am not in competition with Passageway Church. I am responsible to celebrate 
from victory to victory, the fruit of the ministry as a byproduct of the Holy Spirit moving, and I am to pray for the pastors of our community. And so every Sunday, without fail and throughout the week, my prayer is this. Now, God, for the churches in our community that will uncompromisingly preach a God-centered, gospel-focused message, I pray your blessing and your anointing falls on them. And that collectively, as the capital C church, we will see people come to encounter you and your kingdom come right here in Blair. That's my prayer. Now, that's not to say that we're not to be aware and weigh everything that we hear about these churches or anybody else with Scripture. There are churches that do not preach a God-centered, gospel-focused message. And I am not in favor of those churches. Because God warns us through his word time and time again about false teachers, even false communities of believers. But the Apostle Paul here takes time to celebrate the accomplishments of other churches. Isn't that amazing? This last week I got a phone call from a pastor in Iowa. And they are going through some growing things and getting ready to hire a, a pastor. And they said, hey, how do, how do you guys do this? How do you take us through how you manage this, that, and the other thing? What I didn't do was I didn't say for a consulting fee. <laughs> what I didn't do is I didn't say, if you want to do it the right way, thus saith Andrew. What I did say was, man, that's great. I praise God that you guys are growing. And I absolutely, fundamentally am going to be here to help you, coach you, encourage you. Anything I have, you have. If you want access. How about this? We already have job descriptions for all these jobs. And we're actually in the process of looking for a youth pastor right now. So we've got all the, we've got all the stuff that we're doing right now. It's all yours for free. And this pastor said, are you serious? So yeah, of course I'm serious. And how about this? Why don't you bring your team out here and spend a day with us? And just well, let's learn collectively, collaboratively from each other. Whatever we have is yours. Because it's not about us. It's about the capital C Church. That's not to say that I don't care about us. I care deeply about us. We will be a church that does things on purpose with a purpose for his purpose. We will be a church that looks for excellence, not perfection, but excellence in all things. We will be a church that is active in our faith. We will be a church that looks to help people encounter Jesus so their lives are changed forever. We will be a church that's all about giving, growing, give, grow, gather, grow. <laughs> that's why I use all these acronyms. Not a smart man. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness and all the persecutions and hardships you're suffering. And God, church, we're going to see a series of end come up right now. It's going to come up three times. I would encourage you to circle the word end when you see it and then Tie, tie them together. Watch this. And God will use this persecution. Come on, church. God will use this current circumstance to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. He did not say, we are concerned about your persecutions and the hardships you are suffering. Hard stop. He includes in there a transitional phrase, and. Yes, you are facing difficult circumstances, things that are beyond your control, persecutions, and it's not in vain. 
God's going to work in the midst of your storms, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your tribulations. God's working. The Apostle Paul says two things about suffering. Number one, suffering reveals God's grace in our garbage. And number two, suffering refines us for God through our garbage. Come on, church. Suffering is not in vain. There is an end. Some of you needed to hear that word this morning, that there is an end. Your circumstance is not your hard stop. Your circumstance is an opportunity for God not only to show up, but to show off. There is an end. And God, through those circumstances, promises, he states clearly, that when you are in the middle of garbage in your life, God will show up in his grace and that when you are in the middle of garbage in your life, when you are suffering, it is a process of refining you through your, glo- through your garbage for the glory of God. And isn't that what life is all about? Everything we should be about is for the glory of God. Because that's the eternal that we have to look forward to. Church, this is so good. I am preaching so good about this. Yeah. I mean, not me, but this is just like, I, I can't... I don't mean to make that about me. I mean, just I hope that you're tracking because the Lord has got a word this morning. I, I'm, I'm, and God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom. He's going to show up and he's going to show off for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. In other words, stop defending yourself. Let God do that. Oh, maybe that wasn't for you, but that's where I spend a lot of my time. I spend a lot of my time defending myself. When you move as fast as I do, You tend to make some mistakes. You got to defend some things. The Bible says, look, don't worry about it. God's got this. All right, check this out. Here it is again. So, and in verse five, and God will use his person to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom. Now, here it is again. Chapter one, verse seven. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. Two things I want to talk about with persecution and these end moments. If you would, take your thumb or your finger, hold it in the Bible, and flip maybe 20 pages to your right. You're going to run past the books of T's, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, and then I want you to find James. James chapter 1. I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to learn a thing or two about end moments this morning, creating some margin for end in our lives. Listen to what James writes about faith and endurance. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. James isn't saying that you're just going to grow. What he's saying is, is, is growth is a byproduct of being tested. So when he says let it grow, he's saying bring on the persecution. Bring on the circumstances. Let it grow, he says. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. The apostle Paul in Rome, in his letter to Rome, says, look, don't don't worry about this stuff. You need to keep on because perseverance develops character, character, hope, and hope will not disappoint you. Here Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, look, and when you allow margin for ends in your life, God will do two things. He'll provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. Let's talk about rest for a moment. If, if, Jesus, thought, if Jesus thought it important enough to mention rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he says, all of you who are tired and carrying a heavy burden 
Come to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus took the time to teach the understanding that in the middle of your circumstances, if you're tired, if you're burnt out, if you're exhausted, if you don't feel like you can do it anymore, he says, come to me, all of you who are buried, burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The Apostle Paul reminds the believers that in their persecution, God is faithful to provide not only comfort and, uh, and, and he's going to redeem their brokenness, but he's going to provide them rest. Let's talk about this for a moment. Rest doesn't necessarily mean an escape from your circumstances. Rest means that you fully belong to Jesus and you find your peace in him through your circumstances. Martin Pistorius couldn't change his circumstances. And yet in the middle of feeling entombed in his own body, he writes that Jesus was as close to me as the air that I was breathing. That, my friends, is the zenith of rest in circumstances that are beyond our control. And then he goes on to talk about eschatology. He will come with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, the day of the Lord, he will receive glory from his people, praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed in what we told you about him. This is a significant portion of the letter. The Apostle Paul is writing to clear up some misunderstandings about end times. What to expect. What to look forward to. I think it's important to mention that the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about who we're focused on, what we're focused on, and where we're focused on. My question is, are we so focused on the who's in our life, the others, that we don't have time to focus on who matters most? Or are we so focused on what matters here on earth, the possessions, the promotions, the pleasures of this world that we don't have time to focus on what matters most to the one who matters most? Or perhaps we're so focused on where we are here on earth that we lose sight of where our eternal destiny will be. This is just a practice run. How many, of you, how many of you in here have ever done theater? Raise your hand if you've ever been involved in a play or a drama. Raise your hand. Okay, that's about uh, one-sixteenth of you. Fantastic. <laughs> they never let me in a play. Something about talking too fast, hard to understand, memorizing lines, doing what they ask you to do. I don't know. Wardrobe malfunctions. I don't remember. <laughs> what I do know is that when you are a part of a, a play, drama, something like that in theater... The night before, they have a dress rehearsal. They run through it, they go through the motions, and they practice so that they are prepared in the process. Friends, this side of heaven, 
this is a, this is a dress rehearsal. This is an opportunity for us to practice so that we can be prepared when Jesus comes and he calls the quick and the dead unto himself. The new heaven and the new earth is established. He silences Satan forever. Where every knee bows and every tongue confesses and we experience glory. Do we treat this like a dry run, like a test run, like a dress rehearsal? Or are we treating this like this is the major production? Verse 11. Listen to what Paul says about prayer. So we keep on praying for you. This denotes that they were praying, they are praying, and they will continue to pray. This puts a huge emphasis on why we need to intercede for one another. Every single Tuesday, me along with our, our, our me, I, along with our staff and I, we have the privilege of praying for anyone and everyone that submits a connection card or a next steps card or a prayer request. We take that very serious. We pray collectively as a team. We pray individually for that individual. And, and, and we, we work really hard to follow up with you to know that we're praying for you. We need each other. We need to be in prayer for each other. So I want to encourage you, if you didn't know that we do that, would you please think about that? At the end of one of your rows, there are these cards, next steps cards, get connected cards. And one of them, I believe, has an opportunity for you to put in a prayer request. And you can submit those at the back of each door where the giving boxes are. Or you can go online and submit that. But we, we need to pray for one another. We do pray for you. Listen to what he prays for. No, no, no. Pay attention to what he doesn't pray for. So we keep on praying for you, asking God to, one, enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you, two, the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Notice that he didn't say anything about praying for their circumstances to change. He doesn't say, I'm praying that you won't be persecuted. Why? Because Jesus says, in this world, you will face trials of many kinds, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He doesn't pray that they won't come up against uh, 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 troubles because Jesus says, look, they're going to persecute you. But remember, they persecuted me first. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, I'm praying that your circumstances change. What he's saying is that in spite of your circumstances, I'm praying that you realize God is enough. He prays two strong prayers that God will enable them to live the life worthy of the call that they have received. What a prayer. What a gift that through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we will be enabled to live the life that God has called us to live. That is, by the way, the only way we can ever fulfill the life that God's called us to live is through the power, the enablement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the second prayer is that they will have the, the, the power, the strength within to make the right decisions in demonstrating their faith regardless of their circumstances. You say, Pastor, is it wrong to pray for our circumstances to change? Well, absolutely not. Let me encourage you to flip back over. Keep your thumb here again. And, and, and you should be familiar with James now. We were just there a few minutes ago. Flip back over to James. Take a second. Get to James about, you know, 20 pages or so to your right. James chapter 5. Listen to James' instructions to the collective church. Not just singular church, but these are 12 tribes that are being spread out because of persecution. It is the body of believers, multiple churches under the umbrella of one church. Listen to what the apostle Paul, or excuse me, James says about prayer in verse 13, chapter 5. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? 
you should sing songs of praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, your sins will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has a great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. Church, we have explicit instructions to pray for our circumstances, to pray for our circumstances to change on the heels of praying that God would remain faithful to us regardless of our circumstances. He says, are any of you in trouble? You should pray. The Apostle Paul here doesn't say I'm praying for your circumstances to change, but I'm praying that you would rest in the assurance that regardless of your circumstances, God is enough. God is enough. Man, I was talking with my team this week. And I say it kind of tongue-in-cheek, joking a lot, that I'm going to start preaching health and wealth. Because inevitably, whenever I am preparing to preach a sermon, the Lord says, I'm going to make sure you understand what it is I want you to talk about. And so as I'm talking about God being enough in all of our circumstances, I'm going to be honest with you. This has been a very, very difficult week for my family and I. In many, many ways. Many ways. And with your permission or without it, I'm going to share one example. One example, not so that you feel sorry for us, but so that you understand that we get this at a real level. This is uh, Apostle Paul saying, dear brothers and sisters, I am not up here as one who's arrived. I am one with you. Uh, If we had stairs in the front, I'd walk down and probably sit down with you and talk. This is me saying, I get it, guys. Sometimes life is just gross and overwhelming and hard. And this week was that week for me and my wife and our family. One circumstance that's going to sound really, oh, almost insignificant when you consider people who have plight much worse than us. This is probably the easiest of what we've been dealing with. And I I want to share with you. Many of you know my son, Caden. A lot of you know his affinity for soccer and the blessings that he has where that game is concerned. Some of you know that he actually lives in Kansas City with a host family where he plays for Sporting Kansas City Major League Soccer Team. He's lived there now twice and for several months. Uh, He's worked since he was four years old at a game he loves to reach a level that 1% of the country will reach. And we have supported him and loved him, but it's been a difficult journey because we hate being away from him. Three weeks ago, they were in Anaheim, California, traveling as a team. Caden had a twinge of pain in his left hip. But he ignored it, and he played through it. And the reason that he ignored it and played through it is because, in his mind, his dreams are now starting to materialize. Uh, He had two United States of America national team scouts fly out to watch him play soccer. Uh, His goal is to make the national team and play in the 2020 Olympics. And so here, he has got national team scouts that are watching him, and he had this twinge, but he kept playing through it. Came home, didn't tell his trainer, didn't tell his coach, didn't tell anybody, didn't tell us. Uh, two weeks ago, Saturday, Stacy was able to go to his soccer game in Kansas City. And while playing, he felt that sharp pain in his hip again. But he didn't say anything to his trainers or the team doctor or the coaches. He 
realized that he didn't, he's worked so hard to get here and the season has just begun four or five weeks ago and it's a four month season. So he just was, I'm just going to play through it. Came home and he told us about it and put some ice on it and you know, we're hoping for the best. A week ago Saturday, he was at the training facility and the coach actually pulled him and benched him and said, you're, something's happened. You're not playing very well anymore. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're just kind of all over the board. You're inconsistent as a player, so we're going to sit you on the bench for a while. First time in his life. Some very valuable lessons coming from that. But he finally went to the team doctor, and he said, I've got this pain, and he told his coach and the trainer. Doctor examined it and said, you know, I've got some sneaking suspicions, but I want to confirm, would you come to my office? And so on Tuesday this last week, Stacy was in Minnesota dealing with another family emergency. I was here with my staff when we got a phone call from our son. He has a fractured hip. 14 years old, he's got a fractured hip, and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't put him in a cast. They can't put him in a brace because of where the fracture is. It actually is on the inside of the bone, and it's spreading the more he plays. So he's done. They have pulled him uh, indefinitely at this point. He can't begin to even do physical, uh, physical therapy for at least two to three weeks. And the doctor said it's going to be indefinite until he completely heals. Why do I share that with you? It seems so trivial. It's just a game. But it's a game that my wife and I and our, our family have, have um, recognized that God's given our son a gift. And we've put a lot of effort and energy into helping him with that. And there's some really cool lessons that we're all learning as a family, and we think God is actually doing a new work, and I'm not going to tell you anything about it until we know for sure, but this is a very difficult season for us. At the same time, Tuesday, my wife was in Minnesota dealing with a family emergency with our oldest daughter. And throughout the week, it's just been one thing after the next. Physically, there's some stuff. So I just, I just looked at this. I said, Lord, really? And he says, Andrew, am I a circumstantial God? Or am I a God of your circumstances? And I said, Lord, do I have to answer that? This is real life. And the Lord said, go back to your message. Go back to your message that I've given you, that I've anointed you to give. Guys, listen to this. We keep on praying for you, asking God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call, regardless of your circumstances. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do, regardless of your circumstances. This is how he finishes this part. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored with him. My question is, how many of us want the blessings without the burden? How many of us want the how many of us want the reward without the responsibility? We're quick to jump to wanting the honor. But Paul predicates the Lord honoring us on one thing. Then the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be honored not because of your circumstances, but because of the way you live regardless of your circumstances. How you live your life will declare the honor of God to others. And there it is again. There's the end. Not a hard stop, but end. You will be honored along with him. And this is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share with you that there is a problem with some theology. Some people really wrestle with the understanding that if you believe in free will and human responsibility, that you are taking away the grace of God. 
And what I don't understand theologically is why people want to draw a hard, fast line and say that if you accept the grace of God, then it doesn't matter what you do with your life. Or that if you think that you you have some work to do after you accept God to, to live out your salvation, that you somehow are cheapening grace. I truly believe it's both then. I believe that we can't save ourselves. Why? Because the word of God says that. It's not by works that we're saved, but by grace so that none of us can boast. But if it wasn't important for us to live our lives in a way worthy of honoring the call of Jesus in our lives, why would God countless times include it in the holy text? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work to show yourself as a workman approved by God. Continue in these things. Romans 12, don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a constant daily decision. We have a responsibility to live out our salvation. I want to make sure we're really clear. I believe this is, this is a hard theological line that I need to talk about this morning. Many of us want to run to the theology that says that if you accept Jesus, it's one and done. You're all good. But there is a difference between accepting Jesus and belonging to God. And when you belong to a family, there's work to do. There's work to do. You don't work to earn your salvation. That's a gift from God. And you don't work on your own strength. That's empowerment by the Holy Spirit. But each one of us is responsible for our salvation and the work that we put into growing in our knowledge, understanding, and the active faith that we are called to live not just looking for the blessings, but altering our behaviors. Not just clinging to the rewards, but accepting our responsibilities. I do not believe that any of us saves ourselves, but I believe in our salvation, we have work to do. Why? Because the Bible says so. I want to talk to you about end moments as we finish up today. End moments. Too many of us, we don't leave margin for end in our lives. Too many of us are consumed with the hard stop. We look at our circumstances and we bring it to a hard stop. You've been diagnosed with cancer. Hard stop. Your husband has cheated on you. Hard stop. Your loved one just passed away. Hard stop. You have to file bankruptcy. Hard stop. So many of us look at our circumstances as the be-all, end-all. That that's somehow, that, that's what it is. The thing that God is encouraging us this morning is that we need to leave a margin for the end moments in our lives. These are difficult, and God is present. Your marriage sucks right now, and God can redeem all things unto himself. Your finances are in distress, and if you will fully surrender and belong to him, he will bless you, and he will be faithful to you. That person passed away, and this is an opportunity for you to demonstrate comfort by way of Christ in how you live your life. Because moments. These are the because moments that because of Jesus, people are either drawn to, you, to, to God in your life or they're, they're, they're pushed away at the thought of God in your life. I want to share in closing, this last week I was able to go to Minnesota. I left Thursday around uh, 11, 12 o'clock and I drove straight through for an annual conference. A lot of you know that I have my ordination 
uh, in my education through the Evangelical Church, formerly the Evangelical Church of North America. And every year they have an M2A conference, Mobilized to Action. And pastors from multiple states gather together and we mutually encourage one another. I wasn't able to go last year for various reasons, and so I went this year. And I'm actually obligated in order to keep my credentials to be a part of this. And so I went and I saw people I hadn't seen for 21 months. Can you guys believe that we are coming up on two years of me being the pastor at this church? And who would have thought, uh, praise God, what he's doing. And I'm as good looking now, Stacey, as I was two years ago. (laughs) Praise God. I know you appreciate that. Well, I'm standing there. I turn around and I hear this, this familiar voice to me. It's my pastor friend, Terrell. Terrell is the pastor of an inner city church called Beacon of Hope. And he comes up to me and he says, my man, my man. And he shakes my hand. He pulls me in for a hug. I said, how are you doing, Terrell? He says, I'm blessed. Things are hard and God is good. He's leaving end margins in his life. Let me explain. Pastor Terrell grew up in the inner city streets of Chicago. One of the most notorious gangs in the United States of America is the Gangster's Disciples. Pastor Terrell was an OG, an original gangster, one of the original gang members of Gangster's Disciples in Chicago. Collectively, he spent 27 years of his life incarcerated. The last run, he was in one of his many homes with his wife and children. He has nine of them. And he heard his dogs barking at 2 a.m. And he got up and he went to the window and he opened the doors. And as he did, he looked out and there were red dots. He said about 50 red dots all over his body. It was FBI, DEA, marshals, local law enforcement, ATF. They raided his house. All of his kids. I think he said he had $250,000 in a duffel bag underneath his bed. They, they confiscated all of his houses, all of his jewelry, all of his money. Sent his kids off. Crazy stuff. Ends up incarcerated. Federal penitentiary. While he's in the federal penitentiary, through the most difficult circumstances of his life, he comes to know Jesus and he belongs to God. He comes out and he gets involved in a program called Pure Life Builders. It's a halfway house that is Christian-based and it is geared toward discipling others and giving them work, gainful employment, because as a felon, it's very difficult to get a job, especially after you have nine scars all over your body from where you've been shot nine times and you have a rap sheet longer than your leg. Pastor Terrell began ministering in the local church and he went to college. He finished his GED, never graduated high school, but finished his GED and uh, the conference that we're a part of sent him off to seminary. In fact, we graduated seminary together. Got out and he's doing an amazing work. Four years ago, I think, they planted Beacon of Hope. One of the most amazing moments of my life, watching what God was doing in his church. I I stood in the back and there is a, a conglomerate of white folks and black folks and old folks and young folks. And Pastor Terrell comes out and they announced the start of the new church and the place erupts. What was amazing to me were the number of active gang members in Gangster's Disciples that left Chicago to come and celebrate God in Terrell's life. Not in their life. They didn't believe it, but they were there to support him. Church full of Christians and gang members. And Terrell preached the lights out of that place. About a year ago, he had an ear infection. So he thought, doctors gave him some antibiotics, wasn't getting any better. 
kept getting checked out. Finally, he goes to the ENT. While he's at the ENT, they discover a, a growth. Turns out it's stage four cancer behind his ear, right next to his brain. They start a very, very aggressive round of chemotherapy and radiation. He loses over 80 pounds. Becomes a, just a, a frail image of what he used to be. He's eating through a, a bag attached to his stomach. He goes back in January. They took some x-rays and the cancer was gone. We celebrated as a staff. And six weeks later, we went for another checkup. And multiple lesions and tumors appeared in his lungs in just a short period of time. The doctors told him, Terrell, without chemotherapy and radiation, you'll be gone in six months. With it, you will live maybe to a year, maybe two times. And Terrell said, you're talking about my circumstance, but you don't know my God. I'm going to leave some margin for ends in my life. Doctor said, but Terrell, the, the tumors that you have, they cannot shrink. We've never seen them shrink. We just want you to be aware this is the kind that metastasizes and spreads. I turn around and I hear his voice. I say, Pastor Terrell, how you doing, man? He said, my man, my man. I'm blessed. I said, what was the last report? He said, man, you know, Pastor, God's not done. Oncologist did a check. I'm the only one that they've ever seen tumors shrink at this stage. God's not done with me yet. You know what he never said? I'm so mad that I lost all this weight. In fact, he said, I was praying that God would have helped me to lose weight. And he said, now I got to be careful what I pray. <laughs> True story. He never complained in his circumstances. He clung to Christ. Despite his circumstances, he made margin for end moments in his life. No hard stops, end moments. I don't know this side of heaven how his story ends, but I know that it's not a hard stop. Because God is not a circumstantial God. God is a God in all circumstances. This morning, I just wonder who here needs to create some margin in your circumstances for an end moment. This is your difficult circumstance, and if you allow God to, he will show up, and he will demonstrate. Not only will he show up, but he will show off in your life. Come on, church. Somebody here this morning needs to leave some room for an end moment. Because God is enough, even through our circumstances. Amen.